This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mer Lafferty from GeekFoo Action Grip. www.geekfooactiongrip.com Journey to the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne Chapter 13 Hospitality Under the Arctic Circle It ought to have been nighttime, but under the 65th parallel there was nothing surprising in the nocturnal polar light. In Iceland, during the months of June and July, the sun does not set. But the temperature was much lower. I was cold, and more hungry than cold. Welcome was the side of the boyer, which was hospitably open to receive us. It was a peasant's house, but in point of hospitality it was equal to a king's. On our arrival the master came with outstretched hands, and without more ceremony he beckoned us to follow him. To accompany him down the long, narrow, dark passage would have been impossible. Therefore we followed, as he bid us. The building was constructed of roughly squared timbers, with rooms on both sides, four in number, all opening out into the one passage. These were the kitchen, the weaving shop, the badstofa, or family sleeping room, and the visitor's rooms, which was the best of all. My uncle, whose height had not been thought of in the building of the house, of course hit his head several times against the beams that projected from the ceilings. We were introduced into our apartment, a large room with the floor of earth stamped hard down and lighted by a window, the panes of which were formed of sheep's bladder, not admitting too much light. The sleeping accommodation consisted of dry litter thrown into two wooden frames painted red and ornamented with Icelandic sentences. I was hardly expecting so much comfort. The only discomfort proceeded from the strong odor of dried fish, hung meat, and sour milk, of which my nose made bitter complaints. When we had laid aside our traveling wraps, the voice of the host was heard inviting us into the kitchen, the only room where a fire was lighted even in the severest cold. My uncle lost no time in obeying the friendly call, nor was I slack in following. The kitchen chimney was constructed on the ancient pattern. In the middle of the room was a stone for a hearth. Over it, in the roof, was a hole to let the smoke escape. The kitchen was also a dining room. At our entrance the host, as if he had never seen us, greeted us with one word, Selvertu, which means be happy, and came and kissed us on the cheek. After him, his wife pronounced the same words, accompanied with the same ceremonial. Then the two, placing their hands upon their hearts, inclined profoundly before us. I hasten to inform the reader that this Icelandic lady was the mother of nineteen children, all, big and little, swarming in the midst of the dense wreath of smoke with which the fire on the hearth filled the chamber. Every moment I noticed a fair-haired and rather melancholy face peeping out of the rolling volumes of smoke. They were a perfect cluster of unwashed angels. My uncle and I treated this little tribe with kindness, and in a very short time we each had three or four of these brats on our shoulders, as many on our laps, and the rest between our knees. Those who could speak kept repeating, Selvertu, in every conceivable tone. Those that could not speak made up for that want by shrill cries. This concert was brought to a close by the announcement of dinner. At that moment our hunter returned, who had been seeing his horses provided for, that is to say, he had economically let them loose in the fields, where the poor beasts had to content themselves with the scanty moss they could pull off the rocks and a few meager seaweeds. 
and the next day they would not fail to come of themselves and resume the labors of the previous day. Selvertu, said Hans. Then calmly, automatically, and dispassionately, he kissed the host, the hostess, and their nineteen children. The ceremony over, we sat at the table, twenty-four in number, and therefore one upon another. The luckiest had only two urchins upon their knees. But silence reigned in all this little world at the arrival of the soup, and the national taciturnity resumed its empire even over the children. The host served out to us soup made of lichen, and by no means unpleasant, then an immense piece of dried fish floating in butter rancid with twenty years' keeping, and therefore, according to Icelandic gastronomy, much preferable to fresh butter. Along with this we had sky, a sort of clotted milk, with biscuits, and a liquid prepared from juniper berries. For beverage we had a thin milk mixed with water, called in this country blanda. It is not for me to decide whether this diet is wholesome or not. All I can say is that I was desperately hungry, and that at dessert I swallowed to the very last gulp of a thick broth made from buckwheat. As soon as the meal was over, the children disappeared, and their elders gathered round the peat fire, which also burnt such miscellaneous fuel as briars, cow dung, and fish bones. After this little pinch of warmth, the different groups retired to their respective rooms. Our hostess hospitably offered us her assistance in undressing, according to Icelandic usage. But on our gracefully declining, she insisted no longer, and I was able at last to curl myself up in my mossy bed. At five next morning, we bade our host farewell, my uncle with difficulty persuading him to accept a proper remuneration, and Hans signaled the start. At a hundred yards from Gardar, the soil began to change its aspect. It became boggy and less favorable to progress. On our right, the chain of mountains was indefinitely prolonged like an immense system of natural fortifications, of which we were following the counterscarp, or lesser steep. Often we were met by streams, which we had to ford with great care, not to wet our packages. The desert became wilder and more hideous, yet from time to time we seemed to descry a human figure that fled at our approach. Sometimes a sharp turn would bring us suddenly within a short distance of one of these specters, and I was filled with loathing at the sight of a huge deformed head, the skin shining and hairless, and repulsive sores visible through the gaps in the poor creature's wretched rags. The unhappy being forbore to approach us and offer his misshapen hand. He fled away, but not before Hans had saluted him with the customary, Selvertu, Spetels, said he. A leper, my uncle repeated. This word produced a repulsive effect. The horrible disease of leprosy is too common in Iceland. It is not contagious, but hereditary, and lepers are forbidden to marry. These apparitions were not cheerful, and they did not throw any charm over the less and less attractive landscapes. The last tufts of grass had disappeared from beneath our feet. Not a tree was to be seen, unless we except a few dwarf birches as low as brushwood. Not an animal, but a few wandering ponies that their owners would not feed. Sometimes we would see a hawk balancing himself on his wings under the gray cloud, and then darting away south with a rapid flight. I felt melancholy under the savage aspect of nature, and my thoughts went away to the cheerful scenes I had left in the far south. We had to cross a few narrow fjords, and at last quite a wide gulf. The tide, then high, allowed us to pass over without delay, and to reach the hamlet of Alftanes, one mile beyond. That evening, after having forded two rivers full of trout and pike, called Afta and Heta, we were obliged to spend the night in a deserted building worthy to be haunted by all the elfins of Scandinavia. The Ice King certainly held court here, and gave us all night-long samples of what he could do. No particular event marked the next day. 
bogs, dead levels, melancholy desert tracks, wherever we traveled. By nightfall, we had accomplished half our journey, and we lay at Krusolpt. On the 19th of June, for about a mile, that is an Icelandic mile, we walked upon hardened lava. This ground is called in the country Hran. The writhen surface presented the appearance of disordered, twisted cables, sometimes stretched in length, sometimes contorted together. An immense torrent, once liquid, now solid, ran from the nearest mountains, now extinct volcanoes, but the ruins around revealed the violence of the past eruptions. Yet here and there were a few jets of steam from hot springs. We had no time to watch this phenomena. We had to proceed on our way. Soon at the foot of the mountains the boggy land reappeared, intersected by little lakes. Our route now lay westward. We had turned the great bay of Faxa, and the twin peaks of Snaefell rose white into the cloudy sky at the distance of at least five miles. The horses did their duty well. No difficulty stopped them in their steady career. I was getting tired, but my uncle was as firm and straight as he was at our first start. I could not help admiring his persistency, as well as the hunters, who treated our expedition like a mere promenade. June 20th. At 6 p.m. we reached Birder, a village on the seashore, and the guide there claiming his due, my uncle settled with him. It was Hans's own family, that is, his uncles and cousins, who gave us hospitality. We were kindly received, and without taxing too much the goodness of these folks, I would willingly have tarried here to recruit after my fatigue. But my uncle, who wanted no recruiting, would not hear of it, and the next morning we had to bestride our beasts again. The soil told of the neighborhood of the mountain, whose granite foundations rose from the earth like the knotted roots of some huge oak. We were rounding the immense base of the volcano. The professor hardly took his eyes off it. He tossed up his arms and seemed to defy it, and to declare, "'There stands the giant that I shall conquer.' After about four hours walking, the horses stopped of their own accord at the door of the priest's house at Stapi. End of chapter 13